Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and online mentorship. And if you are willing and interested in upskilling in telehealth, now is the time. We're offering a 10-minute free consultation. Just head to tkex.org slash mentorship. Now, I am joined all the way from the other side of the world, Mark Sudika. So Mark Sudika PT on Instagram, one of the influencers, if you like that term, one of the gurus, if you like that term too. Um, so I was lucky enough to meet up with Mark in person uh, last year, I believe, from memory. And he's an awesome human, really knowledgeable, and puts out a heap of valuable content, a heap of free content. So really keen to dive into some topics today. So Mark. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me on. Awesome. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm Mark Sertica. Um, I don't know if I'm an influencer or a guru. Um, and we did get a nice little upper body pump at Gold's Gym last year when you were visiting. Uh, I am a doctor of physical therapy located in Los Angeles, California, about five years out from school, um, also an orthopedic clinical specialist, which is uh, kind of unique to the United States here. Um, and then, so I practice, you know, normal kind of outpatient orthopedics, um, and I also teach at the University of Southern California. So those are kind of my roles. And then also working um, in the online space through an online platform called E3 Rehab with Tony Camella and Sam Spinelli. Awesome. If you were to replace the term guru, what, what kind of term would you prefer? Just, you know, just, I'm just Mark. Um, even to most, you know, to um, some students outside the classroom, you know, we're supposed to be pretty professional within the classroom, but, you know, Mark to patients or clients and other physical therapists. Um, yeah, I think there's uh, certain perceptions around the word guru that I'm not a huge fan of. Totally, totally agree. So Mark, uh, you've had your own experiences and I'm always keen to, to dive into the personal experiences of clinicians and therapists who've had pain, injuries, and I know you've, you've had a, you have a bit of a story and you've explained it in a few posts. So if you don't mind, what was the story behind your, your AVN and your, your hip pain? Yeah, so um, quick backstory, as quick as it can be. Uh, when I was 15, I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So over the course of three years, along with chemotherapy, um, you know, I was on an, a heavy dose of steroids. Um, and then at the end of that treatment, I was, you know, 17 going on 18, started developing some hip pain, and then was diagnosed with avascular necrosis of both hips, one side, my right side much worse than the other kind of lived with it for um, about two years and so going into my undergraduate degree i was a business major ended up getting my hip replaced actually as a result of this avascular necrosis um, over the summer between my freshman and sophomore years had a great experience with an inpatient physical therapist just really brightened up my day um, and having um, that hip replacement and having that experience with that physical therapist, you know, led me to go down this path of being 
a physical therapist, you know, that I am now today. That's really interesting. So you were majoring in, in business and then having the own experience yourself and realizing, experiencing the value of, of a physical therapist and physical therapy, you, you change your entire career path. Yeah, you know, I've, I've always been a pretty active person and I lost that ability to be as active as I wanted to be um, when I was diagnosed with avian and quite frankly, when I was di diagnosed with leukemia, right? So I was a very active wrestler. And, you know, when you have this diagnosis of AVN, you know, walking was difficult for me and it got progressively worse. And that's kind of when I decided to get the hip replacement was when I could no longer uh, tolerate just walking short distances, right? So, you know, you really, as an athlete, you identify with the sport, you identify with, you know, as being an athlete, it becomes who you are. And I kind of lost that sense of uh, identity, I suppose. And then when I had that hip replacement, right, even more so, I was no longer this active individual that I once was, uh, you know, lying in bed after the surgery, being on um, bed rest per the doctor's orders, and then having this physical therapist come in, you know, have this huge smile on her face, you know, very empathetic, very motivating. And I said, you know, I want to bring that same joy to other people in whatever capacity um, that I can. And initially I wanted to be a physical therapist in kind of the pediatric oncology realm. Um, but now, you know, I live more in the, in the orthopedics realm. Yeah, and, and what brought you to more of the orthopedic musculoskeletal world? Same thing, I think just, you know, my passion for being active, right? So actually when I stopped wrestling, I did pick up um, weightlifting much more, more in like the traditional bodybuilding sense. Um, so even when I had this diagnosis of, of AVN, I was still trying to do some leg workouts, you know, weight bearing or otherwise within tolerance. Obviously that became limited. And, you know, it just felt like the right place for me, especially going through PT school. You know, I love going to the gym. I love playing sports regardless of, you know, whatever hip pathology I might have. Um, and I just, it, you know, it's just motivating, um, to work with un other individuals with, you know, similar interests as yourself, uh, and being able to relate to them to be able to help them achieve those same goals. Right. So if somebody comes to me with, you know, maybe the same kind of sense of loss of identity because of something that a pain or injury or loss of function is, uh, is causing them, then, you know, I can somewhat relate and try to get them back to whatever goal they might have. The, the deeper kind of goals and meaning behind someone's, you know, rehab. That's so important to, to relate and also target that area. So would you then now, nowadays being around Gold's Gym, it's not open at the moment, but being around there, would you identify as a, you know, top bodybuilder? You know, I, I, I've never competed and I've never, you know, taken myself too seriously you know i have goals that relate to aesthetics and function um and and strength to some extent as i've gotten older a lot of my goals you know just relate to being healthy um you know um enjoyment feeling good things like that and i you know i have seen people from the gym and you know we've had some good conversations and you know, I've helped, you know, some individuals, which is really nice. 
Um, but me, myself, I wouldn't consider myself a, a top level bodybuilder in any capacity. So you, you do the lifting for more of the holistic health benefits versus the aesthetic benefits, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, and, and a lot of it is to uh, complement other aspects of my life. You know, I, like I said, I don't play as much, um, you know, do as much sports or other activities as I might have when I was a bit younger. But, you know, my goal now isn't just to grow the biggest muscles, right? It is to, hey, if I want to go run on the beach with my dogs, I've at least prepared myself in some capacity to be able to, to do that. And I understand that, you know, I might have some other differences compared to somebody who's quote unquote healthy compared to my past medical history. And I want to make sure that I'm setting myself up for, you know, as much success as possible moving forward in the future. Because even now, you know, I know I'm going to have to get another hip replacement. I'll probably have to get another, uh, you know, another revision even after that, maybe a second revision, maybe more, there's more complications, the more revisions you get. I understand that the research is kind of muddy on how long these hip replacements last. I have a metal on metal hip replacement, which at least here in the United States and, and other places is not really recommended. We see um, the use of metal on metal extremely, extremely low um, in most countries now. Um, and then I know that, you know, I do still have this, at least from my understanding, this diagnosis of avascular necrosis on this other side as well. Um, you know, it, it hurts, there's some limited range of motion, but same thing, I think that if I probably wasn't as active as I was, I'd actually think it get it would get worse, which might be, you know, direct contradiction to what, you know, maybe certain physical therapists or doctors would say in terms of how active I'm supposed to be uh, with the condition that I'm in. And I'm curious, what kind of narratives and explanations, recommendations were you were you given by by professionals during this rehab period in terms of lifting, in terms of getting back into your meaningful activities? Yeah, so I had good and bad experiences. So I think my surgeon, for the most part, was actually more forward thinking. He chose this metal on metal hip because generally um, it allows for a greater range of motion. And so me being younger, it would allow for a greater range of motion. The thought at the time was that it would have a lower wear rate as well. So I could do more with less you know, wear on the implant. Um, and this was back in 2009 when I, when I had my hip replaced. And so, you know, in terms of activities, you know, he, he basically said that I can continue to play sports in some capacity. Obviously, I'm not playing tackle football. You know, I'm not going and playing, you know, really, really high level stuff. But he said, for the most part, if I want to be active, I could. So that was really nice. And then I did tell him my aspirations of continuing to lift and doing some of these bodybuilding type routines. And his advice to me was, you know, don't squat more than 135 pounds. When I had my hip replaced, I was probably 140 pounds, maybe. Um, so it was roughly body weight that he was recommending, which same thing is not, you know, probably a lot of doctors might not have recommended that back in, in 2009. And his rationale was, well, I'm doing these kind of hip replacements on individuals who are, uh, you know, maybe morbidly obese, and they're carrying around much more weight just doing their functional tasks of sitting on the toilet, sitting on the couch. And so if, you know, these implants could withstand that wear and in addition to, you know, maybe some other uh, issues with, you know, their bone stock or comorbidities, then no problem. You can continue 
squatting 135 pounds now. Since then, I've obviously done a little bit more than that. And then in terms of a, a rehab standpoint, um, the person that I actually did most of my rehab with was, um, I think she just had a master's in some kind of exercise science. So she acted as kind of like the aid to the physical therapist. I didn't work with the physical therapist that much, um, but she pushed me to do a lot of uh, plyometric single leg type activities, which same thing, I think if I went to most traditional physical therapy places back in 2009, um, I don't know if I would have gotten much more than, you know, bridges, straight leg raises and things like that. So I was very thankful to her to, you know, she showed me what I could do. Um, and otherwise it would probably would have been, I probably would have figured it out, but it would have taken me a lot longer to get there without that guidance. So I was really appreciative of being able to work with her to get to where I'm at today. That's awesome that you had the high value care maybe and you also worked with the narrative that you were you were given and you were able to get back into your meaningful activities and that's so it's, and we touched on the the value of resistance training and, and strength and conditioning for general function walking being able to handle stressors in life so how do you approach resistance training strength and conditioning for for those in in your setting in the orthopedic setting so I think my standpoint, you know, for strength and conditioning in my setting comes from, you know, really valuing patient-centered care. And, you know, I think there is like these running jokes on social media of what's the best exercise for low back pain. And a lot of people now rush to just say deadlift, right? You have low back pain. What's the best thing for it? Barbell deadlift. Because, you know, maybe there is this uh, psychosocial component where you feel strong, you feel resilient, it loads the low back. So it, it actually makes the low back and the hip complex strong. But we also have to understand that the person or the patient has to value whatever exercise we prescribe them, right? So if the person has no interest in per performing a barbell deadlift, that might not be my go-to exercise for them, for their experience of low back pain, for their you know, fear of picking something up off the ground or whatever it may be. So I'd like to think that it starts with a conversation of, you know, what do you like to do and what's realistic for you? Now, if someone comes with a blank slate and I think actually really enjoy working with um, older individuals, uh, oftentimes, right, individuals who maybe have like Medicare um, in the United States, uh, because they might have a blank slate and they might just say, you know what, I want to improve my my balance. I want to reduce my risk for falls. Uh, I want to be a little bit healthier. And at you know, the same time, I want to get rid of this nagging knee pain or back pain. Um, and that opens up a lot of possibilities because then you can start with um, a dumbbell deadlift, a kettlebell deadlift, move up to a barbell deadlift. And the benefit of exercise right plays into both pain and function now we can use you know manual therapy or these other passive modalities and potentially reduce pain which inevitably improves function but with these maybe let's say higher level um, approaches of you know appropriately prescribed exercises you know they can reduce pain while also improving cardiovascular, cardiorespiratory health, uh, improving bone density, you know, 
reducing pain, you know, re reducing function, reducing fall risk, improving gait speed, improving their sit to stand scores. So when I'm trying to apply these strength and conditioning principles, I want to find out, is the person open to it? You know, are they going to enjoy it? Are they motivated to do it? And if so, what's going to be a realistic goal for us to start them off? And so somebody initially, we might start with one day or two day a week, right? And then, because um, we're not always going to have the optimal rep schemes and set schemes, right? Obviously, we don't want to necessarily underdose when we can and just do, you know, a set of 30 reps. Um, but it's never going to be as optimal as we would like. And we have to work within uh, the constraints that are given to us in our environment or with the patient and the patient's environment. Um, and I think that's kind of my starting approach for applying some of these strength and conditioning principles. Awesome. Person-centered care is a little bit of a, a buzzword these days. So it's great to get a bit more in depth on that. You're, you're looking at what they want to do, what they are working towards. If they had no pain or pain wasn't an issue, what would they be doing more of? and then a plan based on their preferences, their equipment available, their availabilities in terms of time and maybe in finances, then building up a program using the principles. I think I, I see a lot of the other way around where we look at fitting people into those principles. And if you don't have that set rigid scheme, you're, it's, it's just not worth it. So people forget the value of, it doesn't have to be perfect, just has to be perfect maybe for that person. Right. And I recently worked with an individual who was 73, 74 year old male, but you would look at, right. And, you know, somebody else might say, well, he has the scoliosis and he has this thoracic kyphosis and, you know, I want to, I want to work on his posture and I want to work on all these different things. Well, he came to me and he had some different issues and his preferred form of activity and his only form of activity was hiking. And he would hike about once maybe twice a week but he would only really do this when the weather was appropriate for him and so when i was seeing him over the winter and this is in los angeles california it's not too cold but it was too cold for him and when you actually go to some of these higher elevations you know it is pretty cold he wasn't doing any activity so his day consisted of waking up kind of sitting and he enjoyed watching youtube and not doing much activity and so we ended up developing a routine in the clinic that he really enjoyed and this is just doing TRX rows and kettlebell deadlifts and pushups and things like that. But that wasn't necessarily the best carryover for his home. So what we determined is, hey, what two exercises at minimum do you want to do and do you like to do? And he really likes to do pushups. And this is, like I said, this is a guy who does you know, no activity and he could do seven, eight pushups really well on the floor, normal pushups, no modifications needed right? And he loved deadlifts. And he would kind of do like a squat deadlift hybrid. I didn't really care. He's picking up a heavy weight and putting it back down. And so when it was time for him to be quote unquote discharged, we set up a routine where he's just doing deadlifts and he's doing pushups. And he didn't have any weight at his home. And the reason too is he lives on his own, you know, small apartment, not a lot of room. He ended up buying himself an 80 pound kettlebell and that was it. So he had, he now had an 80 pound kettlebell. He could deadlift it for as many reps as he wanted. He'd do some pushups. That's a superset. So when he's not able to hike, he's able to do those two movements and it's super simple. You know, it doesn't have to be complicated. 
awesome, awesome example and how he got that. So about 40 kilos for the, the Aussie audience into his home. If he has any stairs, <laughs> you've definitely built him up, built up the capacity for him. So Mark, moving on to, to social media now. And if anyone knows you, they would know you from Instagram. So tell us, tell us your journey with, with Instagram as a, as your social media platform. Yeah. So, you know, I think I, I've never been a social media person. I can't say that now because I have been on social media for so long. You know, I had an Instagram back in PT school. I didn't use it for any of the purposes I do now. I made a new one probably three to four years ago um, when it was, you know, slowly evolving into what it is now. Um, and I would post kind of haphazardly every once in a while. And I think my goal was just to try to put good information out there, evidence-based information out there that would help as many people as I possibly could and, you know, do it for free. Um, and that's how I started. So that there was nothing that, you know, necessarily, I don't know, I wish I could say there's something that motivated me to do it. Like I said, I just wanted to, um, I wanted more than what my current role was. Um, and I wanted to help more people than I could in a given amount of time. Uh, right. You only, have so much time with face-to-face -face interaction and I was hoping with the social media, I could influence, impact more people, not influence, impact more people. Um, and then over time, you know, like growing my social media to 150,000 followers, there was no recipe. It was just, Hey, you know, try to put out good information, um, on a somewhat regular basis. And, you know, people were reciprocate either other people who put out content or people who follow, um, you know, and they appreciate if you actually try to, you know, provide value. I never started to try to make money or anything like that. Um, it was just to, to help as many people as I could, I guess. Great. And you absolutely have done that. So thank you for all the content that you do put out. It's been invaluable to see some great ideas and also the, uh, seeing some of the evolution of the ideas maybe over the years might be interesting. Have, have you changed some of your Kind of stances and adapted it as evidence emerges say because how long have you been on instagram now it's been a few years yeah so i think i've been on instagram for three or four years and you know my posting has definitely evolved with my growth as a clinician you know um, sometimes you do get a little bit jaded because you try to put a lot of effort into really high quality evidence-based posts, whether they're infographics or whatever it may be, and you might not see a lot of return on investment and it can be a frustrating, you know, process, but, um, you know, so I think it, I think it's evolved a little bit for everybody. And then obviously because there are so many more people on social media in every capacity, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, um, you know, you do kind of have to adapt to the times, but I think that's the biggest thing is that, you know, probably in my first uh, 10 posts, one of them or two of them might've included a foam roller. Um, and since then, right, I've, there's, there hasn't been a single foam roller. And I, I've never even really used a foam roller, but I said, hey, you know what, like people like foam rolling, I might as well kind of include it to roll your quads or whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, so it's just, it's been an evolving process. It's a great kind of shoulder and kind of core exercise if you, you know, keep it lengthways, like a really extended plank. That's, that's one of the best ways for using a foam roller and also hitting people. If you don't like it, there you go. <laughs> so, and with the time 
that you spend, uh, I, I imagine you spend and dedicate a lot of time in, with the, the, the content production um, and planning stages. So how much time would you spend, say, uh, uh, over a week for your social media? You know, like I said, I think it's evolved a bit now, but um, traditionally it was probably like at least an, an hour per post, right? So when you think about, hey, if I'm going to film five exercises, I'm going to edit those exercises on my phone, then I'm going to write some captions for those exercises. And, you know, but like I said, for some that you're really putting a lot of value into and you're really trying to put some research in there, right? And say, well, these exercises might be valuable for these reasons based on the research, you know, you might be seeing more than an hour. And now with the E3 rehab, we have been trying to transition to a little longer form content, whether it's blogs or YouTube videos. And I think that's another difficult space um, because it requires a longer attention span from individuals, right? Um, it's not as sexy to read a blog, um, but I think there's probably a little bit more fulfillment for me and my, you know, colleagues, um, you know, really trying to work on things that we enjoy. And that's what I probably tell people who do get on social media is, hey, how do I get as many followers as you? And I, I don't think that's a good goal to have um, because you probably will burn out and you, not, you, know, you might not be staying true to yourself. And so preferably put out content that you enjoy and the, that you find valuable. And like I said, people will reciprocate and the people who follow you or who interact with you will be the ones that, you know, actually hopefully um, matter in the long run, I suppose. That's it. And it's really great to hear how much time you spend. So for those uh, people out there that are looking to just get a, you know, quick fame and quick hundred K followers, it's not as simple and it's probably not even the right mindset to have entering into the world of social media. So it's about helping people out first and foremost and doing what you find valuable. Now, I know that you get a lot of comments and, and probably a lot of DMs. How do you kind of navigate that in terms of your time availability? Because I imagine you have a lot of projects going at the same time. How do you allocate the time to, to respond to, to comments and such? Yeah, I think that's evolved as well. I think I, I used to almost, or I did respond to every single direct message and every single comment. And I don't necessarily do that now. And it's not because I don't necessarily care or that I don't read them. I read every single direct message. Um, it's that the people who sometimes put the effort into writing me a message or writing me a comment, you know, don't necessarily put a lot of effort into a question that they have. And it doesn't necessarily motivate me to put effort into answering that question. So especially if it's something like, hey, what do I do to fix my knee pain? Or hey, send me exercises. Those are things that I'm probably gonna spend less time answering. But anytime someone, you know, as a student, as a clinician, uh, as someone who's just, you know, wants more resources, wants to learn, I'm gonna answer every single one of those every one of those comments or direct messages. Um, I've told people that if they want to talk on the phone with me, shoot me a direct message. Um, we'll swap phone numbers and we can discuss whatever it is that you want to discuss as long as it doesn't pertain to your specific diagnosis, right? But I've had students call me and say, hey, what's the best strategy for me to try to get in, or I've had 
you know, a coach say, Hey, how can I incorporate, you know, maybe some of these evidence-based things into my current practice. Um, so for people who, you know, are going to put the effort in to reach out to me and, and, and ask a good question or want to have a good conversation, uh, I'll reciprocate that. No problem. Um, but otherwise I'm probably responding to a, a fewer DMS and, and comments. Great. That's awesome. It's, it's important to, to kind of have people that are engaged versus just, you know, give me a spoon, feed me all the information, tell me all the answers. Cause it's, cause it's a free kind of uh, platform. So that maybe there is that kind of expectation. It's hard for people to commit to uh, the question itself. So moving on to some of the, the misconceptions and the myths that you've, you, you've come across and perhaps are prevalent nowadays. I know there's countless from years past that we've been, uh, we've been fighting through. So just the recent ones, what's some of the common misconceptions and myths that you you've come across over Instagram, over social media? I hope you have like 20 hours. We could be here, you know, we could be here all night because as you said, we've been fighting the same myths and the same misconceptions for years, right? Like I said, I've been out of practice, you know, I've been in practice for five years. Um, and some of the myths that I try to bust on, on Instagram aren't new to people who have been practicing for 20 years or 30 years, unfortunately. And it's just that, you know, sometimes we just kind of see this circle of life where, you know, it becomes less prevalent and then more prevalent and then less prevalent, similar to some of these modalities that we see where, you know, they make this comeback. Um, you know, recently I made a, a YouTube video and a blog about sacroiliac joint dysfunction. And that was really based off a paper that was released and they were discussing how prevalent this issue has been for as long as it's been right. And, and thinking that our, uh, in all normal circumstances that our SIJ can go out of place or that it can upslip or that it can downslip or that it can have this torsion. Um, and I mean, most of these myths are just, a you know, make people feel fragile. That's what it is, is that they create these fragility beliefs. Um, you know, whether your disc slips, your SIJ is going out of place, your, you know, vertebra is going out of place. Um, I mean, we can start with any of those, right? Like th th that's, th that's my, probably one of my biggest pet peeves or things that really frustrate me are these things that create these fragility beliefs. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, you know, malintentioned. People don't necessarily do it for, monetary reasons either they just might not know better um, but I think what's really frustrating is that when they they learn to know better and they still do it um, you know that that's when it, it really kind of gets underneath my skin I suppose you and I both mate when it gets underneath our skin there's that kind of anger frustration and how do you respond to that do you go with the the kind of you know Meekins approach if you'd like with kind of attacking and kind of calling people out or do you go with perhaps a different approach? What's your your, your take? How do you respond to to the myths? Yeah, so I, I don't think the Meekins approach works for me or my personality very well right and, and everybody has their own approach and I think that has been what I try to do with the social media Instagram YouTube blogs is put that information out there. And sometimes it's nice, you know, information doesn't necessarily change people's minds. We know that. People know that, you know, certain 
foods might have more nutritional value and certain, you know, exercising is good and smoking is bad, but just knowing these things doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, create action. But, you know, I do think that sometimes when I put this information out there, then people ask more questions and they ask, can I have more resources? Or, you know, they have other people commenting and they start having a discussion. Um, and I think that's been my approach is just what can I do to try to put this information out there in these different formats um, to help people, right? So whether it's the sacroiliac joint dysfunction, you know, I try to just present the research and say, hey, this isn't what, you know, this is why this probably isn't the case, but here's other ways to still manage it, right? It's, you can, it's very reasonable to have pain in this area and it's very reasonable to do, you know, exercises or whatever strategies to help you manage that pain, but you don't necessarily have to think that you're having this pain because your SIJ is out of place. Or I also wrote a really big blog on, you know, plantar fasciitis and just the term plantar fasciitis makes the person think that they have inflammation, they need to rest, they need to ice. Um, and, you know, when you start to present them with some of this other data, you know, they can start to think, you know what, like, especially when you make them uh, reflect on it, right? Maybe some motivational interviewing, depending on the population that we're talking to, if we're talking to our patients or our clients or whatever it may be. Um, you know, I, I think being able to just do whatever I can to help empower, empower others. Um, but for me, yeah, taking the real direct approach just doesn't suit me super well. More about being helpful with the advice on what to do instead versus you know, that's just shit. Don't do that. So you're not just leaving people in the dark. That's really great. And I love the point of perhaps the implications of some of the diagnoses as well. So leaving people with the idea that they are a bit broken. And I wonder if some of the treatments that we can choose, some of the interventions that we choose as, as professionals can also leave people with an idea that, Hey, maybe I need that. Maybe I'm so tight or so broken or so weak that I need that kind of specific intervention for, for this that they might perhaps not need. What, what are your thoughts on the kind of dependency and the implications of the treatments that we choose? Yeah, you know, I still think that, you know, there's a, a very uh, good need to still validate people's beliefs, right? If they come to you and they tell you my sacroiliac joint is out of place, you're not going to say, no, it's not, that's stupid, it doesn't exist. You're going to hear them out. You want to know why they think what they think. You want to know what they think is going to help them. And the same thing, why they think they think is what's going to help them. And, you know, I know that I'm not always going to help everybody. Greg Lehman has a great uh, point about like the boomerang effect, where, you know, you might present this information to one person, and they might not believe you, and you might not help them but that second practitioner tells them the same thing. And then they might say, you know, you know what, that, that Mark guy wasn't so, wasn't so bad after all. Maybe he wasn't so wrong. I'm hearing this again, or maybe they don't really believe that second practitioner, but it's that third practitioner or they listen to your podcast and they go, wow, you know, I've heard this a few times now. Maybe there's some merit to my SIJ not actually being out of place. Uh, to go back to your, your question about, you know, these interventions that lead to dependency. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I can't say that I use a lot of manual therapy or any other modalities in my own practice because like I said earlier, you know, one of my big things is empowerment. Um, 
and I'm trying to empower the person to the best of my ability, uh, you know, to get better, whether it's a reduction in pain and improvement in function, uh, you know, to reach their goals. And I don't think that some of these other modalities are necessarily the best uh, way to do that. And oftentimes, even with the right narrative or what we think the right narrative is, that narrative doesn't get across. So, you know, you tell somebody, oh, I'm putting kinesio tape on your SIJ region to alter your sensation or your proprioception in that region, but that's just gonna help you exercise better. Well, for somebody who has the belief that their SIJ is out of place and you put that tape on them, they might be thinking that that, you know, that tape is holding their sacroiliac joint in place. Right, so we might even have good intentions with our narratives as it relates to some of these mo passive modalities, um, but I've seen the same thing where, you know, patients hear or or think certain things regardless of what that um, narrative is, as good of intentions as it may be, it may have. Absolutely, the the kind of unspoken or uh, reading between the lines of what you're providing as a, as a service and what they're leaving with, what they are taking away from it because they're not going to remember every single word that you say and they might value the experience of symptom modification or of being able to, to function better and they might attribute that to, to the tape that you, you put on their SIJ. So I think that's a really great point to, to hammer home for people to think big picture, take a step back, um, not just think that if we tell the right narrative uh, that they will, that we can do whatever we like, right? Right, you know, like, like you said, you know, and sometimes we have to ask the, the patient or the client, you know, what did you take from what I told you? Or what did you take from the session? And maybe that's all we need, right? Because if we put the tape on and then we do the exercises, and the tape is the thing that immediately changed their, you know, perception of their pain. What value do the exercises bring if we don't follow it up with a really good explanation either? Um, so, you know, it's, it's complex. I can't say there's a simple answer to any of this. If there was, you'd be making a lot of money, Mark. So it's really good to discuss the nuances in that. Now for a couple of final questions, Based on your, I was going to say influence. Now I can't say influence anymore. Based on uh, what you've seen uh, as a as an Instagram um, person that a lot of people follow and look up to, what's and you've come across lots of content, lots of narratives, lots of con um, kind of we've mentioned some myths and misconceptions. But what's what's one thing that, or a few things that the industry is missing? What do we need more of as as rehab professionals, as health professionals. Can you repeat that question one more time? So with your knowledge and your influence, what's, what's missing in our health industry? What do you feel we need more of? Gotcha. Yeah. I got, I'm going to keep coming back to that word empowerment because I think that is, is huge, even when it comes to exercise, right? So you can be that practitioner who is 
all about exercise because you know that it does improve function, it improves health, it improves all sorts of outcomes. But it depends on how you provide that narrative to patients, meaning that you can provide the narrative of, you know, do these exercises because you're going to get, you know, this great social interaction with your significant other and your friends, and it's going to make your bones stronger and it's going to make your muscles stronger and it's going to have all these positive benefits. You're telling them all these great things that it can do versus, you know, maybe the person who isn't so healthy, who isn't so active, rather than telling them, well, you know what, if you don't do this stuff, your bones are going to get weak or your muscles are going to get smaller or you're going to get, you know, all these X, Y, and Z comorbidities. And it seems like such a simple thing, but I don't think it's something done very well. Even by me, I know that I can, I can improve upon that. But I think we really have to have that empowerment at the root of what we do. And I think it, it makes it less on Instagram or in person, I really would recommend to most people is just choosing your words carefully and making sure that you're building the person up and you're saying, you know what, this walking program is really going to help your low back for all of these other reasons versus saying, if you don't do this, it's going to have this negative cascade. Um, so that's, that's huge for me. Empowering with positive messages rather than just the negative messages. That's great. Mark, thank you so much for your time. We've survived a few connection issues, but I'm sure the, the audio is, is crisp and mint. So thank you so much. And where, where can we find you? Uh, if, if someone's been living under a rock, where can we find you? Yeah, so I am on, uh, you know, Twitter and Facebook at, you just type in Mark Sertica. My last name is S-U-R-D-Y-K-A. My Instagram is PT. So same thing, you type in my name. Um, and then E3 Rehab, kind of that online platform, a lot of free blogs, YouTube videos, podcasts. Uh, we're trying to put out, you know, free information as well. Um, so those are all places that you can find me. Awesome, Mark. Thank you so much once again and stay safe and hopefully, hopefully we meet up in person one day and hopefully you come over to our shores, either or both, you and, and the partner, Nicole. You guys are awesome, awesome as humans and awesome as, as physical therapists. So thank you and until next time. Thank you.